0: we need the tonic of wildness at the same time that we are earnest to explore and learn all things we require that all things be mysterious and unexplorable that land and sea be indefinitely wild unsurveyed and unfathomed by us because unfathomable. We can never have enough of nature. Henry David Thoreau Well, greetings, Grace Chapel. Good to be with you all today after a couple of weeks away. I was actually up in Wilmington last Sunday catching up with what's happening there, but we're glad to be together today. Glad you're joining us in any of our venues or if you're watching online. I want to give a special shout out today to a young woman from our, young girl from our congregation, Becca, who is watching today at Boston Children's Hospital with her family, where she's been for the better part of the past six months. So Becca, we want you to know that we're thinking about you, we love you, and you're a brave girl, and we look forward to having you back with us real soon. And, uh, there you go. Well, my guess is most of us recognize some of those video images of Walden Pond, just down the road a piece here in Concord, a place where the poet, philosopher Henry David Thoreau spent a good deal of time walking in the woods and thinking deep thoughts. Now, Thoreau, or Thoreau, if you're an enlightened New Englander, (laughs) was one of the founders of the transcendentalist movement, a school of thought that, that elevates human experience and looks for the divine in the natural world. Now, the transcendentalists believed and valued both mystery and meaning. Listen again to some of his words. At the same time we are earnest to explore and learn all things. we require that all things be mysterious and unfathomable. Like his conquered colleagues, Emerson and the Alcotts, Thoreau drank deeply of life and nature, but he still longed for more. Which brings to mind my second favorite U2 song. The one some of us heard just a few moments ago. Still haven't found what I'm looking for. I have climbed the highest mountain. I have run through the fields only to be with you. I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls only to be with you. The poet philosopher Bono is describing his search for more. For more his longing to to fill the deep yearnings of his heart. It's a pursuit that took him through fame and wealth and romance and religion and some risky behavior. He even references his Christian faith. You broke the bonds and loosed the chain, carried my cross, I'm not ashamed, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Which raises a question, if he's found Christ, what's he still looking for? And we'll come back to that a little bit later. Well, like Thoreau's writing, Bono's music gives voice to the mystery of life and to humanity's search for meaning. And the two of them bring to mind another poet philosopher known to us as the teacher or the preacher of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Now, Ecclesiastes may well be the strangest book in the Bible. It's part of the wisdom books of the Bible, along with Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and the Song of Songs. But it's a book that has puzzled Bible readers and even challenged Bible scholars for centuries. What exactly is its message and what exactly is it doing in the, in the Bible? Some have questioned whether it belongs there in the canon of Scripture. But I hope by the time we're done with this series here in the month of August that you'll not only be glad this book is in the Bible, you'll be glad you had some time to explore it. And that's what we're going to do for the next five weeks or so, the themes of this book, Ecclesiastes. Now, we all know, we hate to admit it, but we have flipped the calendar to the month of August. Which means we are beginning to gear up for another year of school and work and ministry and all the demands of life. And so it seems like a good time to ask in this month of August, what's the point? Is there a point? Why do we give ourselves to all the things we'll be giving ourselves to in the next year? And this year, will we really find whatever it is we're looking for? So that's what we're going to go after for these next several weeks. And to get us started, I'd like to share with you the the opening couple chapters of this book. And I'd like to share them with you the way Solomon, or the author, the teacher, might have shared them if if he were speaking to us today. So don't try to follow along in your Bibles. I'd like you just to kind of listen for a few minutes. Try to listen for the themes of the book and Listen for the mood of the book as well, and then we'll come back and take a closer look. The the version I'll share with you is a kind of a blend of the New International Version and the New Living Translation for those of you who are interested in those kinds of things. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Israel. Meaningless. Meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people get for all their labors under the sun? Generations come and generations go. The earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets. And it hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and turns around north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run to the sea, but the sea is never full. The waters return to the rivers again, only to flow into the sea again. Everything is so tedious beyond description. No matter how much we see, we're never satisfied. No matter what we hear, we're never content. I, the teacher, was king in Israel. I was wiser than all who came before me. And so I devoted myself To the search for meaning. I applied my wisdom to everything that's done here under heaven. And I discovered that God has laid a heavy burden on the human race. Because I've seen everything there is to see under the sun. And really, it's meaningless, it's like chasing the wind. What's crooked can't be made straight. What's missing can't be recovered. With more wisdom comes more sorrow. With greater knowledge comes greater grief. So I said to myself, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But this too I found to be meaningless. Laughter is... foolish. What good does it do to seek pleasure? I tried cheering myself with wine. All this wisdom, and I'm clutching at foolishness. I tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself, planting beautiful vineyards. I made parks and gardens and filled them with all kinds of plants and trees. I I built a reservoir to collect water, to irrigate my flourishing gardens. I bought servants, men and women, large flocks and herds, more than anyone else in Jerusalem. I amassed a great treasure of silver and gold. I, I hired wonderful singers. I had a harem of beautiful women, everything a man could desire. And so I became greater than any king who had ever come before me. I denied myself nothing. Whatever I wanted, I took. I even found some pleasure in my work, some reward for my hard labor. But when I looked out over everything I had accomplished with all that work, it was all meaningless like chasing the wind. I saw that wise and foolish people share the same fate. They both die. And whatever they have acquired or accomplished, they leave to someone who comes after. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. And so I came to hate this life. Because everything done here under the sun is so troublesome. It's all meaningless, like chasing the wind. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. So how about a little background on this book we call Ecclesiastes? As we said, it's considered wisdom literature, which was a common literary form, not only in the scriptures, but in the ancient world. Greek, Roman, culture, all had wisdom literature. It's also considered pessimism literature for obvious reasons. And that too was a common literary form in the ancient world there's actually an ancient Egyptian manuscript entitled, The Man Who Hated Life. I understand it was very popular on Netflix at the time. (laughs) Now, we don't know exactly when this book was written. We don't know exactly who put this book together. And now verse 1 tells us that these are the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And that sure sounds like Solomon, who was the son of David, who was king in Jerusalem, and who was given the gift of wisdom. But but Solomon is never really named specifically as the author of this book. So most scholars agree that it seems to have been written or compiled by a student or admirer of Solomon's sometime later, trying to capture Solomon's message for his own generation. I mean, we we might imagine today a a local contemporary playwright who performs a one-act play of, of Henry David Thoreau at the Performing Arts Center over there in Concord. If Thoreau could speak to 21st century Americans, what might he say? And that's kind of what's happening here. We're channeling Solomon. Certainly the thoughts, the experiences, and even some of the words are entirely consistent with everything we know about Solomon. And certainly we believe that the author-editor was inspired by the Spirit as he put this together, and that the Spirit superintended the inclusion of this book in the canon of Scripture. So what does the wisest man who ever lived have to say about the mystery of life and humanity's search for meaning? Meaning? Let's look at some of the opening verses. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now how's that for a pregame pep talk? (laughs) Gets you all excited for the year to come, right? Now this word translated meaningless, or in the King James Version, vanity. Vanity of vanities. It's a very interesting Hebrew word. It literally means vapor or smoke. If you turn your attention to the screens, it's describing something like this. A puff of smoke. It appears for a moment. You can see it. It's actually kind of impressive. It can even be beautiful for a moment or two. But suddenly it's gone. There's no substance to it. It's fleeting. It's gone without a trace. And life is like that, the teacher says. A vapor, a puff of smoke. In fact, he says it 30 times in this book. That's a pretty grim diagnosis from a man who had and did just about everything there was to have and do in his world. So what would prompt him to come to such a pessimistic conclusion? Let's keep reading. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? The teacher's thinking like a business person here, which he was. What's the ROI? The return on investment for all our work in this world. And when he talks about labor, he's not just talking about jobs that we get paid for. He's talking about the things we do every day to make our way through life. The care of a home, the raising of children, going to the gym, mowing the lawn, playing Candy Crush, whatever it is we do to make our way through the day. What's the point? The phrase under the sun is also an interesting phrase. This is the only place in the Bible we find this particular book. It does appear, though, in other ancient literature. And so apparently it was a common poetic way of describing the physical world. Everything we can see, hear, feel, taste, touch, smell. And and in, in the verses to come, he describes in detail the apparent meaninglessness of all of it. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever the sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises every day is the same they're all 24 hours long they all begin the same way with the sun coming up whether you want it to or not and whether the day is good or bad they all end the same way with the sun going down same as it ever was same as it ever was in the words of another existential rock tune anybody know the name? The group? Talking heads. There you go. Talking heads. Same as it ever was. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. Even the wind, which seems to be free and unpredictable, is actually just going in circles. And the answers, my friend, are blowing in that wind. See what I did there? (laughs) Thanks to Bob Dylan and others. All streams flow into the sea, but the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. I don't know how much the ancients knew about the water cycle, evaporation, condensation, but they understood that it's all just going in a circle. No more, no less, just water. All things are wearisome, boring, Predictable, tedious. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Is that Mick Jagger I hear in the background? I can't get no <laughs> satisfaction. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. In other words, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Karen and I are just back from an anniversary trip to Italy. It was our first time there. Great trip, art and and history, religion, gelato, the whole thing. I can promise you you'll hear more about it in sermons to come. But one of the most impressive sights was the Colosseum, just, just down the road from our hotel there in Rome. 2,000 years old, and it's still standing. But what struck me about the Colosseum was how similar it is to the stadiums we build today. It's got wraparound seating for 60-some thousand people multiple entrances and ramps to handle the people flow. It's got VIP skyboxes. It's got a food court. It's got locker rooms for the contestants, even the furry ones. It had a retractable roof. Really, a retractable roof. Everything but a jumbotron. I mean, 2,000 years of advances in science and technology and engineering, and we're still building stadiums the same way they built them 2,000 years ago. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? So the teacher wraps up this opening rant by declaring once again the mystery of life. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And he really did see just about everything there was to see in that ancient world. And in the weeks to come, we'll, he'll, we'll talk about some of those things. Wealth, pleasure, power, ambition, achievement, learning. What promise do these things hold for our lives? What traps do they present that might keep us from meaningful life? What's wrong can't be made right, he says. What's missing can't be recovered. In spite of all our advances in science and medicine and technology and diplomacy, the poor are still with us. War still rages across our planet. Races still can't get along with each other. And people still die 100% of the time. So it's a pretty grim diagnosis, as we said. Meaningless, vanity, as fleeting and pointless as a puff of smoke, 30 times, he tells us. No wonder we call it pessimism literature. No wonder we wonder what in the world it's doing in the Bible. So if we were to sum up the theme of this opening section, and really the underlying theme of the book, we might put it this way. If under the sun is all there is, it will never be enough. If under the sun is all there is, it will never be enough. If this earthly life, if this physical world, if these 70 or 80 years are all there is, it's just a puff of smoke. It's here. It's impressive. It can even be beautiful. But it's fleeting. And soon it's gone without a trace. So. So what's the point? Philosophers have wrestled with this question for ages. The transcendentalists found meaning in human experience and, and the world of nature. Existentialists find meaning in human freedom. It's the choices we make, the decisions we make that bring life meaning. Hedonists find meaning in pleasure, eat, drink, and be merry. Humanists find meaning in self-actualization, achieving our potential as human beings in a human race. And understand, there's some value in all these schools of thought. There is some meaning to be found in all these approaches. But is it enough? Does it really satisfy the deep longing of our souls. When the last wisp of smoke fades and there's nothing left, does it really matter how we lived? The nihilist would say, no, it doesn't really matter. So you might as well do whatever the heck you want, even if it means tearing it all down. And at one point, Several points, actually. It seems as though this is where the teacher is landing. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. But now, wait a minute. Shouldn't he have known better? Isn't he forgetting something, leaving something out like God, for instance? I mean, remember, this this is the son of David. He, He was raised in the household of faith, the knowledge of God. Surely he saw how real and vibrant his father's faith was, his father's relationship with God. In fact, Scripture tells us that Solomon himself had two personal encounters with the living God. He he received from God the gift of wisdom. He he saw the Shekinah glory of God fill the temple. He led his nation in in praise and worship. And now here he is looking back over his life apparently and declaring the meaninglessness of it all. Shouldn't, didn't he know better? And you know what? Deep down, he does know better. Deep down, he knows there's something more. There's someone greater and higher. And from time to time, in this rambling rant rant we call Ecclesiastes, that awareness breaks through, as it does in chapter 2. He writes, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him... Who can eat or find enjoyment? It's as if looking back over his life, he, he, he has an epiphany. Wait a minute. I remember there was a time when I really did enjoy life. There were, there were moments when I sensed God's presence and the goodness and beauty of it all. There were times my work was satisfying and meaningful, and I felt like I was something lar- part of something larger. And those moments, this, this God consciousness breaks through the surface from time to time in this pessimistic book. And it shows up again in chapter three in what I believe is the key verse of the book. It unlocks the, the, the mystery and meaning of this book and I believe it unlocks the mystery and meaning of life itself. He writes, I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Eternity. Eternity means more, more time, more space, so much time, so much space that those categories don't even make sense anymore. Eternity means more beauty, more being, So much more that that this earth can't contain it all. So much more that our human minds can't even comprehend it all. The teacher knows deep down in his heart that under the sun is not all there is. And deep down in our hearts, we know that too. That's why the transcendentalist walks into the woods. That's why the existentialist seizes the day. It's why the hedonist looks for a better buzz. It's why the humanist reads another self-improvement book. It's why the nihilist deep down hopes that he's wrong. Because we know deep in our hearts that we were made for more than this life. And that longing, that yearning for more is there because someone put it there. Someone who wants us to search for meaning, someone who wants us to find our way to Him. And the teacher comes to that understanding. I know that there's nothing better for people to do than to be happy and do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This is the gift of God. God does this so that people will fear Him so that people will find him, so that people will worship him, so that people will serve him, so that people will enjoy him forever. Life was meant to be lived in relationship with God, the God who made us in his image for a good and eternal purpose. And this world will never be enough, and life will never be satisfying fully apart from him, apart from him. Now, we're wanting to be careful in this series not to rush to easy, simplistic answers because these are tough questions. We all struggle sometimes with the meaning of life and the harsh realities of this world we live in. Even a God-appointed king like Solomon Even a Christ following singer like Bono, even everyday people like you and me, we struggle with these questions. What is the meaning of it all? Why do the wicked prosper sometimes and why do the righteous suffer? Why is a little girl in the hospital for six months and she can't get better? We wrestle with questions. There's a mystery to life. There are answers that elude us. Some things are unfathomable about this experience we call human, human being. And so we will be exploring some of those themes in the weeks to come. But our starting point is here. If under the sun is all there is, it will never be enough. But if God is there, that changes everything. If God is there, That changes everything. And here's what I mean. If under the sun is all there is, then the sun just rises and sets. But if God is there, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sun, moon, and stars proclaim the work of his hands. And sunrise signals the gift of another day to be enjoyed in relationship with God. And sunset signals another day of His faithfulness so we can rest in the peace of His presence. If under the sun is all there is, then the wind just blows. But if God is there, the wind speaks of His Spirit breathing life into this world. When I stand on top of a mountain and, and, and feel the wind rushing by or, or on the beach like I did the other night at Good Harbor with the wind rushing in off the water, it reminds me of God's Spirit on the loose in the world, rushing to and fro, stirring people's hearts. If under the sun is all there is, then a river is just a river. But if God is there, there's a river that makes glad the city of God. And the rain brings showers of blessing and the quiet waters restore our soul and the ocean depths speak of his love. If under the sun is all there is, then nothing ever changes. But if God is there, everything's being made new. New birth, new covenant, new life, and one day new heavens and earth. If under the sun is all there is, then what's, what's crooked can never be put straight, and what's missing can never be recovered. But if God is there, then everything is being put right, and lost sons and daughters are finding their way home. If, if under the sun is all there is, then life is ultimately meaningless. But if God is there, life is ultimately beautiful. And that leads to my first favorite U2 song. You know where I'm going, right? Beautiful day. The heart is a bloom, shoots up through the stony ground, but there's no room, no place to rent in this town. You're out of luck and the reason you had to care. The traffic is stuck and you're not moving anywhere. The singer's having a bad day. A tedious boring, earthbound, under the sun day. But suddenly he gets to he gets to see it all from from heaven's perspective. He from up above he sees the world in all of its beauty and brokenness and, and he finds he finds hope see the world in green and blue he says see China right in front of you see the canyons broken by clouds see the the tuna boats clearing the seas out see the Bedouin fires at night see the oil fields at first light see the bird with the leaf in her mouth after the flood all the colors came out it's a beautiful day he takes us back to the beginning to Genesis after the flood God began doing a new thing He made a promise never to destroy the earth. He promised instead to remake the earth in partnership with the beings made in his image. And that promise reached its fulfillment when he sent his son into this broken world to show us the way and the truth and the life that is truly life. Touch me, the singer says. Take me to that other place. Teach me. I know I'm not a helpless case. What you don't have, you don't need it now. What you don't know, you can feel it now, can feel it now. It's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away. Friends, understand, make no mistake, I am all about seizing the day. I'm all about a walk in the woods. I'm all about enjoying a good meal. I'm all about actualizing our potential. But not because life is temporary and tedious, but because it's eternal and beautiful. At least it can be when it's lived in relationship with the God who made us for himself and for good purposes. A God who makes that life possible through his son, Jesus Christ. So what kind of world do you want to live in? A world in which under the sun is all there is? Or a world in which God is present and active, waiting and wanting to meet you? What kind of life do you want to live? A life that's tedious and unsatisfying or a life that's meaningful and beautiful? What kind of year do you want to have? A year that leaves you tired and bored or a year that leads you into one new and beautiful thing after another? Don't waste another day wondering what life is all about. Eat, drink, work, play, live, laugh, love to the glory of God and for the good of the world and the joy of your eternal soul. Let's pray. Let's pray. Amen. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the freedom to ask hard questions in our private moments and here as a community. We thank you for this book, which speaks to the deep ache and longing of our souls. We thank you for coming into this world, this broken world, in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, in order to make things beautiful once again. Lord, meet us now in these moments as we gather around the communion table, as we remember again the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate new thing. May we sense your presence and find joy and vision for the days to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.